Um, I remember once at uni when I was uh, we had a music trip down in Tasmania, we took on the ferry um, from Melbourne down to uh, Tassie. Back then it was the Abel Tasman. Um, and that night was a big ship, a big hunk of steel floating on the ocean. Um, but apparently that night word spread that it was going to be one of the worst crossings I'd ever done um, across the Tasman Sea. And about half the passengers or more spent most of the night with their head hanging over the edge, giving up their dinner, um, or else they were down below asking the ship's doctor to give them a shot or a tablet to help them settle. Uh, It wasn't a pleasant cruise at all, but it was just one night. Paul and this crew that we hear in Acts 27 and everyone on board that ship, the prisoners, the passengers, they were at it for days, weeks. Three days of absolute carnage on the water, And then another couple of weeks of stormy weather with no sun, no stars, nothing to guide them by. Think about what Luke's actually writing there. It's not just there was no daylight. They had nowhere to work out where they were. They ended up arriving on an island. They had no idea where they were. And it just kept on coming. Neither sun nor stars appearing for many days and no small tempest lay on them. And all hope of being saved was at last abandoned. This chapter contains one of the most detailed reports of an ancient uh, shipwreck ever and it's actually quite detailed and technical. Um, And whilst mariners through the ages might be interested in what Luke writes here, the vivid description and the technical details of a first century shipwreck from the route they took, the different winds um, and even the way they undergirded the ship, effectively trying to wrap the hull um, with ropes to try and keep it together and reinforce it against the battering waves... Luke's reason for writing it here isn't to give us the technical details of a shipwreck back in the first century. Luke's writing to show us how Paul weathered this storm. He's writing to show us, more importantly, how God was present and active with Paul through the storm, through every high and stormy gale, as we sing. And Luke was there. He was on the ship, and he probably, unlike Moira, wasn't thinking, isn't this great? This is awesome. No, he would have been worried about his own life as well in the midst of this storm. He would have felt every peak and trough of every wave, every lurch and sway of the ship as he too endured the storm, a very literal and real storm and shipwreck, a very tangible experience. They would have been soaked to the bone, weary and exhausted, tested beyond the limits of their strength and the sailors, their experience, exhausted of all their resources and energy, Within an inch of their lives, they gave up all hope of being saved. And we might never experience such an event out in the ocean. We might never step foot on a boat in the high seas. But there are lessons here for us to learn, aren't there? We've already heard one with the children's story. There's faith to see here in this storm for us to embrace. And there's obedience here for us to observe and to follow and exercise ourselves. There are plenty of sailors' tales and sea shanties which sing and talk of events like this, but the image and metaphor of the storms in high seas and shipwrecks are often applied to life as well, aren't they? As Moira shared with the kids. Abraham Lincoln once said, kindness is the only service that will stand the storm of life and not wash out. Gandhi once said, dignity of human nature requires that we must face the storms of life. And just yesterday I read Boris Johnson 
described the recent increase of COVID cases in Europe as storm clouds over Europe. So we can see how the image and metaphor of a storm is applied just to life, can't we? Now, if national leaders and gurus are not your thing, maybe you would have heard the Doors back in the 70s singing something like Riders on the Storm. Into this house we're born, into this world we're thrown, like a dog without a bone, an actor out on loan, Riders on the Storm. Well, maybe like me, you weren't listening to music in the 70s, but a decade later, Supertramp sang It's Raining Again. Another decade later still, ACDC belted out Thunderstruck. And I don't think I can justify quoting the weather girls singing It's Raining Men. (laughs) But I just want to show that I am up with latest music. (laughs) No, it's a a popular image, isn't it? That's a different type of storm altogether. Um, Metaphorical storms and shipwrecks take place in all of our lives, don't they? Maybe you're in the middle of one now. But it's not just the secular world of politics or songs and pop music uh, that we have that metaphor used. It's actually a very biblical image. Psalm 46, for instance, God is our refuge and strength, always ready to help in times of trouble. So we will not fear when earthquakes come and mountains crumble into the sea. Let the oceans roar and foam. Let the mountains tremble as the waters surge. Or Ephesians 4, Paul speaks about the maturing of the growing and equipping of the saints so that we'll no longer be immature like children and won't be tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching. Storms of false teaching, new ideas to come and entice our hearts and minds. Psalm 42 uses the power of the ocean to describe God's own sovereign hand and his fatherly discipline and his judgment deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls all your breakers and your waves have gone over me and we sing plenty of hymns with similar images don't we from my hope is built on nothing less in every high and stormy gale to in christ alone firm through fiercest drought and storm heard about jesus on the boat with his disciples jesus even spoke about a parable though didn't he The wise man built his house on the rock, the foolish one on the sand. What's the difference between the two builders in that parable? Can you remember? You're not just meant to remember the the pictures. One hears the words of Jesus and does them. The other hears the words of Christ and does not do them. That's the difference between the builders. And here in Acts 27, we have a man, we have Paul, who has heard the words of Christ and he does them. He believes the word of God and he acts in obedience to that word. It strikes me, I know we sort of chopped and changed a bit with the reading because it's a long passage, but it strikes me that in the very midst of these raging seas, after two weeks and 20 verses of being tossed this way and that, when the sailors themselves have abandoned all hope, they hadn't eaten for days... Luke tells us in verse 21, Paul stood up among them. How do you stand up in the middle of a storm when the waves are tossing the whole boat left and right and backwards and forwards? How is it that Paul can stand up in the middle of that after two weeks and everyone has lost hope? I want to put it to you this morning that Paul can stand up and does stand up here because both his feet and his faith stand on the solid foundation of Jesus Christ.
Throughout this entire chapter, throughout the entire storm, Paul has an anchor for his soul. And so can we. You might know the words from Hebrews concerning the certainty of God's promise. We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. Have you got that anchor for your soul? Are you holding fast to that hope? In other words, we can be on a ship tossed to and fro like Paul here, whether real or in metaphoric imagery, we can have the same sure and steadfast hope and anchor that Paul does here. Whatever the weather. Because we have the same high priest and saviour as Paul does in Jesus Christ. And some of us here know this well and truly. You've been through storms of life. You've endured storms that maybe some of us could never even imagine going through. And you've known that Christ has been with you and you've held fast and he's held fast to you. And then there'll be some others of us here, maybe younger ones who are thinking, I don't really know what a storm is yet. (laughs) Had a few bumps along the way, but what are you really talking about? Not sure if I really need this straw and steadfast anchor. Let me tell you, you do and you will. But there are others here also, I know, who are actually in the midst of storms right now, one way or another. Storms maybe you wish you didn't have to ride out at all. You wish it would just be all done with. And you might even be saying in your mind, Ray, that all sounds well and good. It's a nice image, nice metaphor. Paul did it. That was all, it's good in theory. It's nice theology. You're already guessing what I'm going to say, but I just don't feel like I need anything to hold fast to at the moment. I just want it all to stop. While some strong encouragement, like the writer of Hebrews tells us, is helpful and you're thankful for it, what you really want is some respite right now and a fair haven to pull up into. You want your feet on solid ground once again. If that's your situation now, and for us all I trust this morning, can I encourage us, let's see what Paul actually says and does here. Let's see what God does and see what we can learn from him. Let's hear from God and from the one that Paul looks to and trusts for his strength and refuge. Timely, the rain's coming down. Luke makes it really clear how dangerous this voyage gets. Did you hear the words in the reading? You know, a, a wind of typhoon, mine says a tempestuous wind. They arrive with difficulty from one place. They coasted with difficulty to another, a place called Fairhaven, which in reality wasn't that fair at all. No sailor wanted to spend winter there, so they pressed on. The voyage was now dangerous because of the time of year. A tempestuous wind rose up and it was only with such difficulty that they could secure the ship's boat, had to haul the lifeboat up unless that got snagged or broke into the boat itself. They feared they'd run aground and violently, they were violently storm-tossed. Luke's making a point here, isn't he? He really wants us to get the point. We're meant to get the picture, a bit like with, you know, and the boats are just flying everywhere. All the way up to verse 20 when... All hope of being saved is lost. At which point Paul stands up and speaks. He did speak earlier on, told the captain and the crew, or at least the centurion, and he was to listen. Um, they didn't listen to him. The centurion wanted to listen to the sailors instead. 
He'd warned them that the voyage wouldn't go without injury or loss of cargo and even the ship and their lives if they continued. But like most of us, we don't like to admit defeat, do we? Especially if we're in an area that we're experts in, that we're well experienced like the sailors. What's this landlubber Paul, this small preacher guy? He's a prisoner. Why should we be listening to him? We're in our, our own territory here. This is our home turf. We know what we're doing. I'm not going to listen to him. And I'm sure at the point when at uh, verse 13, the wind blew gently, supposing they'd obtained their purpose, they would have thought, ah, what's he talking about? He knows nothing. And we just prove it to him, we'll be able to get there. And then all of a sudden the wind rises up again. Things go very quickly from bad to worse. And even the sailors for two weeks didn't eat, whether they couldn't keep their food down or they were so busy or didn't have the time. Two weeks. And all hope is lost. All their reserves are spent. Nothing else they can do. And Paul speaks up. And he does tell them, you should have listened to me. But he doesn't do that with any arrogance or a sort of narky attitude. He, he's actually really wanting them to listen to him now. <laughs> Look, you could have listened to me then. See what's happened. Now's the time to listen. Listen to me now. Because I don't know if you're anything like me. You probably are. <laughs> because you've probably got a sinful, stubborn heart as well. Often, even with the good gifts that God's given us and our abilities, we use them to try it by our own strength, don't we? Rather than looking to the giver of those gifts to keep us going. And sometimes it takes every crutch and every prop to be pulled away, ripped away, broken, before we actually realise just how vulnerable and fragile we are and how much we really do depend on God for every breath. Sometimes until it's all taken away, we can't see that God's the one who sustains us, whatever our resources. Paul really wants them to listen now to the one who will keep them through this storm. And what Paul tells them when all hope is abandoned, and what I want to encourage us this morning is don't abandon all hope. But even if you get to that point, hear what Paul says, because he stands up before them and says, take heart. Two weeks of absolute carnage. And he says, take heart. Don't be afraid. I have faith in God. Even then, the sailors still try to take matters into their own hands. If we haven't listened to God before now, like the well-experienced sailors haven't, now is the time. If you've been going through a a storm and it's been a long time and you feel like giving up, you feel like all hope is lost, take heart. Don't be afraid. Now is not the time to abandon ship. Now is the time to listen. And I reckon the storms we experience in life are a little bit like the different storms and winds of this chapter. Sometimes the going is just plain difficult. It's hard work. Progress can be made, but you're pushing up against the wind the whole time. But you can sort of push on as best you can. Other times it might feel like the wind is to your favour, like the old Irish blessing. May the wind always be at your back, as it appeared at verse 13. Only for something tragic to happen and all of a sudden you're in the middle of a storm and you didn't even know what happened, just in the blink of an eye. Tragic accident, an unexpected diagnosis or something else. And then there are whole seasons of storms, weeks on end, maybe whole winters 
which last even longer than winter that you're enduring. How is it we can stand in the midst of those storms? Well, how does Paul stand here? I've already said he has an anchor for his soul. His faith is in Jesus Christ and that's what he holds fast to. But what is it about his faith? What has he heard? What does he know that gives him such strong encouragement to be able to stand up and say, take heart? If you think more in pictures, what are the the links in the chain between Paul and the anchor for his soul that keeps him? What's the reason and the basis for him telling the sailors and for telling us to take heart and not to be afraid when all hope has been abandoned? I think the first link in the chain is that Paul knew God was with him. Often in the times of trial, we wonder if God's with us at all, don't we? We think he's abandoned us. Don't you care that I'm perishing? The disciples said to Jesus, we're perishing. We think he's just forgotten us. That's actually not the case at all. The presence of a storm in our life doesn't mean the absence of God. Hear that. The presence of the storm doesn't mean the absence of God. We've already seen, I read from Psalm 46, that the waterfalls, the waves and the breakers are actually God himself. They're his waves, they're his breakers. Not a demonstration of his absence, but his presence in our life. Now that's not to say that every storm we suffer is a God himself coming against us in that way. Only to say that in every storm that doesn't prove God is absent. In the story the children heard in Mark 4, it's simply Jesus' presence with them. Not just the fact that he can calm the storm, he's got the power to do that, but his presence that he says, why are you still afraid? I'm with you. And it's interesting in that story to note that it was Jesus' idea to suggest going across to the other side in the boat. He took them into and through that storm. Paul knew God was with him here on the ship. And that was confirmed by the appearance of an angel, a messenger of God, who appeared and spoke to Paul. So the first link in the chain, God was with Paul. He knew that. And there's something more than that, more than just God's presence. Sometimes God's presence for people can be a thing to fear, can't it? If God draws near to them, they just run the other direction, rather than relieving that fear. But for Paul, knowing God was with him was a relief for fear. And I think the difference between the two is actually knowing whether we call upon God, who's the judge of all the earth, as father or not, as Peter would put it in his letter. Paul didn't only know and trust that God was with him, Paul knew that he belonged to God. That's his words. Read in verse 23, This very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong. Why is it your kids run to you and jump into your bed when the thunder and lightning strikes at night? Are they any safer there? In one sense, no. But it's because they're with you and because they belong to you and they look to you as their safety and security and their authority. There's strength there and there's comfort because they belong to you. They're your children. And belonging doesn't just mean being welcomed and feeling accepted. It is that, but it's more than that. It means you are his Do you look after the things that are precious, that, that belong to you? Are they precious to you? What about the people in your family? God treasures those who are his. They're precious to him. Did you hear the words in the song we sang? 
Preach it to yourself. Sing it to yourself. Oh, my soul, arise. God owns you as his child. Shake off your guilty fears. My soul, arise. And when we know that, that God is with us and that we are his, when sin and temptation and storms of life come upon us, if the enemy is trying to throw us off balance and out of faith, Instead of fearing God and his judgment for battling in those times, we can actually know, a bit like in the movies, when someone says to one of the bad guys, if you want to get to them, you'll have to get through me first, that we actually have God standing before us. Jesus stands in the breach and literally says, over my dead body. Instead of fearing God and the threat of his judgment, we can know his protection and security in Christ. Because we are his and none can snatch us from his hand. That's what what it means to belong to God. That's what gives Paul the strength and encouragement here that he needs. He knows he belongs to God. There is one who stands between him and the wind and the waves who is able to control them and protect him. He has not and he will not forsake you. Now, does that mean we will survive every storm? Reality and experience would tell us not. Does it mean Paul knew he would survive? Well, I think in this circumstance, he had good reason to believe he would. God had told him he would get to Rome. God had told him on the ship through the angel that his life would not be lost, provided they did what he said. So Paul can be sure... We can't necessarily be sure we're going to survive every storm, but what we can know is that whatever the weather, whatever the outcome, we can be sure God is with us and he will not forsake us. Even if the safe haven to which he finally gets us to land is the new heaven and the new earth. You might have thought, hang on, if God had told Paul, you're going to go to Rome and bear witness to me, that it would be a pretty easy journey to get there. This is God's plan, he's going to get to Rome. (laughs) You wouldn't think God would put him through something like this to get there, would you? But he does. Like the old church sign I saw years ago, God doesn't promise smooth sailing, only a safe landing. Wherever that safe landing is, like I said, it might be the joy and glory of the new heavens and the new earth where there's no more storms. But he's promised us smooth landing. He's promised to be with us and we are his. And the third link here, I think, is a strong link of God's word. God speaks to us. He's spoken to Paul here through an angel. He spoke to him earlier saying, you will go to Rome and bear witness about me. And even if we don't have those kinds of words spoken to us, those kinds of experiences of God speaking to us personally, I don't know about you, but I don't have an angel wake me up every morning. But I do have his word. Do we actually look to this and see it as God's word to us? Do we read it and hear it and believe it and obey it? Or do we trust in something else on the side? This, we're told, is useful and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness and life so that we might be complete, proficient for every good work. It's worth reading. It's worth hearing. I can't urge us enough to read our scriptures. 
to meditate on the word of God and to order our lives and our faith accordingly. As it was for Paul and his fellow shipmates here, we may not have sun or moon or stars to guide us and to know which direction to turn and which decision to make, but we do have God's word and his spirit which reveals that to us and brings it to life. It tells us it's a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And we might want more than that. We might want to know the end from the beginning. You see that great verse in Psalm 119, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto thy path. It doesn't, it's not a big halogen spotlight that throws itself kilometres ahead in life. It's a lamp. It gives us enough light to take one step in faith. And we won't know what's next until we've taken that step and that light and that lamp illumines the next step along the way. It gives us enough to take one more step by faith. And then it shines a little further for the next one. God has spoken to Paul on a number of occasions and Paul has believed God's word and he says here, I have faith in God. His courage or his encouragement to everyone else on the ship is listen to my faith in God. I believe it will be exactly as I've been told. That's a strong link in this chain, isn't it? To the anchor for his soul. If that link breaks... If our faith in God and his word is weak, we are likely to let go of that chain, that anchor, and look to something else. We'll listen to another voice. Like the lifeboat. They looked to the lifeboat. They said, oh, hang on, we'll pretend to be doing one thing. And they said, we're going to get out on the lifeboat while we can. This is useless. They looked somewhere else other than God's word to them. They didn't believe God's word. They didn't hold fast to the promises of God. But Paul was sure and he was determined. He could not guarantee the safety of anyone on that boat unless he and they obeyed God's word. Listened to it and did what God had told them. Which brings us to the fourth link in the chain, the final one. Paul's obedience to God's word. It's one thing to hear God's word, to read our Bibles and to say we believe it. But the kind of faith the scriptures speak about, the kind of faith Paul has here, it doesn't just hear God's word, it does God's word. James tells us that, doesn't he? Don't just be hearers of the word, forget what you look like once you've looked in the mirror, but be a hearer of God's word and a doer of it. Not because our doing, our obedience is what saves us, it's not what it's saying, but actually our doing, our obedience to God's word is evidence that the faith we have is saving faith. It's fruit of that saving faith. You cannot have one without the other. There's no such thing as genuine faith which doesn't hear God's word and then does what it says. And for Paul here, his obedience includes making sure everyone on the ship remains on the ship, even as it's beaten and battered by the wind and the waves. Near the rocks, eventually stuck on the reef, not a hair of their head, not any single one of them, as wet as they might be, will perish if they heed God's word. And that's exactly what does take place. Yes, they're beaten, they're bashed, they're shivering, they're cold, they're hungry. Paul says, eat because you're going to need some strength. Some of you are going to have to swim a little way to get back to shore. But every single one of them, we're told, were brought safely to land. I don't know about you, but often in times of trouble... 
we definitely want God to listen to us, don't we? We pray. First thing we do is we pray, Lord, help me. And we want God to act according to our words to him. How often do we stop and think, am I acting according to God's word to us in those times? It's actually really important. It's not a salvation by works, but it's what a child of God who trusts God's word and knows that he's with him and belongs to him does because he knows the Father knows best. We can be really presumptuous, expecting God to do as we ask while we don't do what he asks of us. As I said, I don't infer that to be salvation conditional on our obedience. But I do want us to realise and for me to highlight that God's not just like a lifesaver who's going to get us and save us when we're in trouble, when we ring the alarm bell. He's not some kind of red alert button, you know, break glass in case of emergency that we can press and pray when we're in a hard time. Again, what's the difference in that short parable between the wise builder and the foolish one? One hears the word of God and does it. The other one doesn't. Twice in this story, Paul and the centurion actually have to command the sailors or the soldiers not to do what they were naturally inclined to do. They wanted to get out on the lifeboat and then the soldiers wanted to execute all the prisoners for fear they'd get in trouble. And Paul's zeal for their obedience is desperate. He wants others to be obedient to that word of God or else none of them can be saved. And we lose that zeal of obedience, don't we, when we're in fair weather times, when things are going well, when life's easy going. But the way God speaks to us and the way he saves us, more importantly, I think, differs from person to person. That is, saving us from particular trials. Just as it is here, there's 276 people on the, shore, on, on the boat. Some of them, he's taught them how to swim so they can get to shore that way. Others, he gives floaties. Take a plank, something else that floats, and hold on to that and make your way there. Others might be rescued in some other way with the help of another person. You know the joke of the guy who was standing on the roof? It's not really a joke, but big flood's starting to come and he's heard about it and someone comes on a surfboard and he says, look, come with me, I'll help you get to land. He says, no, no, it's okay, I'm a Christian, I'm praying, God will save me. So okay, off you go. And the water rises up to his gutters. Guy comes along in a dinghy boat, says, look, come with me, I'll rescue you. It's okay, I'm praying to God, God will rescue me. Water gets up to the peak of the roof and he's standing there praying, Lord, Lord, why won't you help me, why won't you save me? Helicopter comes, lets down a harness, says, no, no, it's all okay, I'm praying, God will rescue me. Until the waters finally wash him away. He gets to heaven, he says to God, I prayed and prayed, I was faithful, believed you'd save me, why didn't you? And God says, what more do you want? I sent you a surfboard and a boat and a a helicopter. God uses means, doesn't he, to save us. He's used Paul here to save 275 other people, if they'd listen. And yet still, sometimes through our storms, some of us are lost at sea. Some of us don't make it. Eventually, that'll happen to us all, unless Christ appears again before then but if we die in Christ that's actually gain isn't it and if we die in Christ we're not lost to sea at all are we we're actually taken into the very arms of Christ to a place he's prepared for us to the safest haven ever 
Yes, we suffer grief, we suffer loss, especially if we're watching on as others pass on. But they don't even see death. They pass from life to life, from suffering to glory. Those who die in faith in Christ and the anchor of their soul takes them home to the safest haven of all. God hasn't promised that we're all going to live to a ripe old age. He hasn't promised us smooth sailing through all our life either. We might think he has or think he should, but it's actually not what he's promised. He's promised us a safe landing. And he's given us a sure and steadfast hope and anchor for our soul in Jesus Christ. A hope, the writer of Hebrews tells us, which has gone right into the heavenlies, into the holy of holies in heaven and links of faith to hold us fast to that anchor, for us to hold fast to, and when we think we can't hold on any longer, he holds us fast in his son. So whatever the weather for you, know that God is with you. He won't forsake you. Know that you're his, that you belong to him, and you're precious to him. And know that he speaks to you. And when he does, and when you open your Bibles, hear what he has to say. And do it. Don't just hear his word, heed his word in faith. And so I urge us all, as Paul does here to the sailors and everyone on the ship, take heart, for I have faith in God, that it will be exactly as he says. Amen.